Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NFL Road Show and welcome to Draft Week. Lindsay Rhodes here. So excited to get this thing underway as we enter yet another phase of the Niners quarterback reporting. Ian Rappaport reporting that it is down to Trey Lance and Mac Jones for the third pick. And I think I just want this to be over at this point. Logically, there are a few things that go through my head when I hear this report. One, you traded up to get someone and you gave up a lot. Two future first round picks and you didn't go to one, you went to three. So you kind of have to be okay with three options there in case the people you think are going to go one and two don't go one and two. And then to be torn at this point between two likely options means essentially you like four quarterbacks enough to draft them third. So you like four quarterbacks enough to give up two future first round picks. That doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to me if they had one guy in mind. One guy that they loved, that they were so sure was going to be a franchise quarterback for them moving forward, that it was totally worth losing those future first-round picks, which is why I thought it was Fields, because he's done it on the field, the the sample size isn't small, he has upside, he has accuracy, he has mobility. If you are betting, which they kind of are, this feels like the bet to make. Trey Lance feels risky. And I get that his upside is crazy, but the sample size is small and the level of competition leaves a question mark. And I just don't know how you know what you're getting with him. And if it's Mac, why is it that so many people are so confused? And not just fans, but football people who are like, yeah, I don't totally see it myself, but I think that's who they're going to like. And to be fair, there are also people raving about him. That article Bruce Feldman wrote last week for The Athletic with quotes from anonymous coaches and scouts. It's a very good read. You should check it out if you haven't already. Uh, The scouts and coaches that he talked to about Mac Jones loved him. They loved him. So the Niners will not be alone in that department if he is ultimately the guy. Though one of the things that they said in that article was that he was the most ready to start right now of the options. And that is specifically what the Niners have said that they don't need or want to happen. Okay, and and let's say it's Mac. Who were they going up to get ahead of? The Falcons? Because Steve Weich last week didn't seem to think that he made sense for Atlanta. It's not the Bengals or Dolphins. Can't imagine it's the Lions. Could have been the Panthers, I guess. Maybe they just wanted to go up so high that Carolina couldn't jump them. But are we sure that they even want the same guy? And again, if the Rappaport report is correct and they're torn between Lance and Jones, then let Carolina go up and get the other guy. Get to where you can take the fourth guy. And how bummed are they going to be if that fourth quarterback drops? (laughs) And they gave up all this to move up. And less importantly, but also a little bit clunky to me, They've said that they want Jimmy Garoppolo to start this year, that he gives them the best chance to win now. But he is sitting at home right now taking this all in, and the message that he is getting is essentially, we think there are four guys in this rookie class that we would rather have than you long-term. Four. In one class. But by the way, we totally believe in you. Go get them. Let's win a Super Bowl. We all talk about that 2004 quarterback class with Eli and Rivers and Roethlisberger. That was three quarterbacks. J.P. Lozman also went in the first round that year. That didn't work out. Uh, The other three, complete and total best case scenario. And even in that case, Roethlisberger went 11th. 
So I'm not saying that the Niners are doing this wrong. I'm not saying that this is a bad call. Clearly they have a plan. They know why they made the move. They know who they have in mind. We don't. And it's totally possible this whole thing becomes clear to us on Thursday night. In hindsight, once we see the way that this whole thing breaks down, what other teams move for what other quarterbacks, who likes who, what they admit after the fact. It's just not clear to me right now, and that confuses me. I feel like with such a big move, it should be a little more obvious. And one more point, because I heard Albert Breer say on Dan Patrick that one of the reasons that they went up when they did was because they wanted to be able to do the things that they've done in the last month, essentially you know, running the, la- the, the latter portions of Fields and Lance's pro days out in the open. They wanted to do all of this out in the open. But I wonder why they couldn't have done that without moving up. Because they moved up and we're still confused. And we know that they're going three. So what if they'd stayed at 12 and keyed us into their desire to get a quarterback? What would that have mattered? We still wouldn't have known which one the same way we don't know right now. Anyway, I did hear one interesting idea this week. Just a theory from someone who I will name if it turns out to be right. Um, But someone suggested to me that maybe the Niners went to three because they want Matt Ryan. So they went ahead of the Falcons. They could draft the quarterback Atlanta wants, maybe force the move, recoup some draft capital. He's a little long in the tooth. Yes, 35 years old, I believe, but I'm not sure it's the craziest thing I've ever heard. We're spending this entire offseason talking about quarterbacks that are like Matt Ryan that Shanahan might want in his system. What about Matt Ryan? One hole in that theory is that it requires them to know which quarterback Atlanta wants, I think. What if they guessed wrong and had to be like, oh, well. (laughs) Anyway, any Matt Ryan scenario makes Jimmy Garoppolo available because Matt Ryan would obviously start for the 49ers in this alternate universe. Um, If there's a team out there that wants Jimmy Garoppolo, that might be interesting. Uh, Patriots. They're always linked to him. I don't know that they actually have any interest. Tom Pelissero is reporting that the Patriots are trying to get up into the top 10 for fields because, again, the guy that makes sense. And back to the Falcons, okay? There are quite a few reports this week that they're listening to offers for Julio Jones, and I'm trying to wrap my brain around what that might mean for their draft. There is obviously a benefit to offloading Julio's salary just from a team standpoint. They need money to sign their draft class. They have no money. They're way up against the cap. And he's still a game changer when he plays, but he's been through some injuries lately. He's getting up there in age. There are reasons why this might be a good time to move on from him if you're Atlanta. What will they get for him though? I'm not sure that it's going to be quite the haul that some people expect for all of the reasons that I mentioned above. Injuries, age, etc. Um, the thing I can't figure out though, as I sit here and obsess about the top of the draft, is what a Julio trade would mean for their fourth overall pick. Would it make it more likely for them to draft Kyle Pitts or Jamar Chase, perhaps? I know Julio's Julio, but I do like Ridley, and I think you could still be competitive offensively if you plug in one of those guys with Ryan, and obviously they'd need to add some pieces later on the defensive side of the ball. Um, I tend not to think that they would want a quarterback in that scenario because I find it hard to believe that they would want to go all in on a rebuild while they are still paying Matt Ryan. It just feels like a waste of money, of his talent, I don't think I get that. I think you continue to build a competitive roster, have Matt play quarterback capably, then draft a quarterback in a future year and maximize his rookie deal. Another trade 
we actually saw go down already a pretty big one at the bottom of the first between the Ravens and the Chiefs. Ravens sending Kansas City a left tackle that they weren't using to play left tackle, Orlando Brown Jr. They'd played him at right. He wanted to play left, so he will in Kansas City. And in return, the Ravens get Kansas City's first round pick, the 31st overall. Also pick up some other late round picks for this year and next year and uh, send KC their second this year. So essentially, I think this is a win-win for both teams. Talking about the Chiefs first. They needed to rebuild their offensive line, and they did. Boom, done. Offseason goal number one, complete. That is worth a low first. As for the Ravens, history tells us, and Eric DaCosta has said, their general manager, they value picks. The more, the better. He just said last week that this whole draft process was, quote, a luck-driven process, and that the more picks you have, the greater the chances are that you will hit on those picks. Started the offseason with four draft picks total, picked up two comp picks in March, and three more in this deal. So they are up to nine now with two in the first. And I think there's a ton of different directions that they could go. They need an edge rusher. They need a wide receiver. And they need help on the O-line. I could totally see them trading one of those picks to move down also. I think that's important to note. Probably 31, which always has value for teams trying to get up for someone specific. This would totally depend on the way that the board has fallen, obviously, and whether or not you think you can get someone you want in the second or later. But I could definitely see this team moving in that direction. And I could see them moving in that direction and still getting an edge rusher. Right, You heard Dane Brugler say on this podcast last week that the edge rusher class this year was skilled but flawed. So how will that affect where they go in the draft? The fact that they all kind of come with question marks of some kind. How much better is the guy that you're taking a risk on in the first than the guy that you're taking a risk on in the second? Especially when you consider that the guy in the second, in this scenario, would come with extra draft capital to bulk up your options. Maybe you could get a Boogie Basham or a Joe Tryon, maybe a Jason Owe in the second, probably not him, but maybe. And how about wide receiver as another position that you could potentially move back for? The top three receivers are going to be gone by the time that they pick at 27. It is not like them to move up, especially for a wide receiver. And I say especially for a wide receiver because listen to this. Devontae Adams, second round draft pick. Tyreek Hill, fifth round draft pick. Stephon Diggs, fifth round. Michael Thomas, second round. Chris Godwin, third round. DK Metcalf, second round. Allen Robinson, second round. Tyler Lockett, third round. Keenan Allen, third round. Cooper Cup, third round. Robert Woods, second round. I realize I'm leaving out some of the best receivers in the league here. Julio, Justin Jefferson, D-Hop, Mike Evans, Calvin Ridley, Amari Cooper, right? They all went in the first round. But you guys, there are legit receivers who went outside the first. Go get a Terrace Marshall in the second or whoever else they like. They need an outside receiver specifically, right? Get a few receivers um, in later rounds. But I wouldn't go in that direction at 27 because I think they get more value for their pick if they go tackle which they need since they traded away Brown. And yes, I've heard the reports that they're going to sign Al Villanueva after the draft, but I've also heard that he might want a lot of money. So I'm not sure that putting him in a position to name his price after the draft, after they don't get a starting tackle, is the strategy that the Ravens want to move forward with. Plus, he'd be a short-term fix 
and the importance of getting that tackle position locked up, that offensive line locked up, I don't think you can win without it. And as our guest today is going to explain, it's hard to find offensive tackles. You can find them later. Yes, David Bakhtiari is arguably the best left tackle in the NFL, and he was a fourth-round pick. But I went and looked at every team's starting left tackle last year, or at least the guy that they wanted to be their starting left tackle. You know, injuries do their thing. But you get my point. The guy the team identified as the guy they wanted to play the position, 21 of them were first-round draft picks. That is overwhelming. And there are reasons why that my guest will highlight. And as you will hear my guest say, there is a cutoff in this year's draft if you want to get a starting tackle. I think you will find the conversation very interesting. I certainly did. I do not pretend here to be an offensive line expert, right? That's going to be obvious. But Paul Alexander is. He is a 36-year coaching veteran who spent 23 years coaching the Bengals' offensive line. PFF graded them out as the best pass-protecting offensive line over a 13-year span there. Sports Illustrated called him the top offensive line coach in the business in 2017. And this offseason, he has traveled around the country and worked with almost all of the top offensive linemen in the draft. He wants to work with more in the future. So he agreed to come on here and share his thoughts, but he didn't want to rank the guys against one another or highlight any negatives because that would be bad for business. But I think you will find the things that he does say very interesting, both about the position in general and also some of the individuals who are dominating draft conversations. So let's get to it. It's time to break the huddle. Paul, it's good to see you. Where are you right now in your offensive line scouting tour? I saw you working with Quinn Miners a couple of days ago. Yeah, well, it's starting to slow down, obviously, because the draft's coming right up. I've worked with 25 guys that I think will be drafted. 25. And, uh, yeah, so I've and I've spent at least two days with all of them. And it wasn't like... Uh, uh, Oh, it wasn't like a pro day where you go in and spend a couple hours and leave. Uh, they were like, I call them immersions, 48 hours where we do nothing. We turn off our phones and we do nothing except talking about blocking for 48 hours. And uh, so I've done that with 25 guys. Yeah. And then other guys I've tra- I've worked with longer than that. Did yeah. you without... Uh, so one of the things that you and I have talked about prior to doing this, because you are working with these guys, you don't feel comfortable, you know, calling out any negative traits or ranking them against one another. So we'll talk about some positive things and some overarching themes, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's good. Because um, obviously, if I ranked them all, then I'd have no customers next year, right? <laughs> That might be so, bad for business, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I hey, can't let me come that. work with you for a couple of days, and then I'll I'll go on and tell Lindsay all the things you don't do well. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about right. We won't put so that on I your can't website. Do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, but you... I can I can give you perspectives about the guys that no one knows because okay. I work with them intimately. First of all, I think just broadly, what are you looking for when you go out? Because obviously this is something you've done for a very long time. You've seen a lot of uh, offensive linemen come through the NFL, what's worked, what hasn't worked. 
What have you found? Are there any specific things that's like the first thing that I'm looking for is this? Or is it different for everybody? What tells you whether it's going to click or not or work in the NFL or not? Well, this is what I do. I call them immersions, I said. Um, I start with a presentation. Uh, It's about two hours. And uh, I tell them, you know what? I'm a science teacher is what I really am by training. And uh, I teach them the physics and physical science of leverage mechanics and blocking and movement patterns and so forth. And I assume that you know nothing. And we start from that standpoint and we go from there and we apply it to different run blocking techniques, pass blocking techniques. And, and I get a feel for the guys and we build that base. And it's amazing how little uh, most players actually know about those things. You know, uh, so many guys, when they come out of college, just, well, they go block the guy. You know, and they may know a thing here or a thing there. But uh, when you talk about the actual biomechanics of the movement and the physics behind it and so forth, it's good. It gives them a good base. And once they get that, then we can go out on the field and we can start doing some of the drills. And what's great is that each guy is different. You know, every player, you know, I had a number of Pro Bowl players. You know what? They all didn't use the same techniques. And uh, the fun part is tailoring the techniques to the player. you know, that works for him based on his size, his strength, his athleticism, and so forth. And after we do that, the last part of it is we start to study defenders. You know, we break down how to block Joey Bosa. We break down how to block Chase Young or J.J. Watt or T.J. Watt or who have you. And we chart them, we study them, and we come up with a game plan that if you were going to block that guy today, what would you do? And then the last thing we do in the immersion is we put on all the blocks that they missed from the year before. Mm. And, and we watch it. And that's hard. And I tell them, hey, pretend it's not even you, all right? Because, you know, it, the object is not to get emotional, not to get defensive, but to study it in a very clinical way. And it's amazing. They go there and say, oh, yeah, this is why. And, and I didn't know why I missed that before. But I know now. So it's kind of a fun 48-hour process that I take on with those guys and then, uh, like I say, and then after that, uh, some of the guys, you know, I continue to work with longer than that. Is it a good offensive line class this year, in your opinion? Uh, Comparatively? You know what's, in- what's interesting, uh, everyone was talking about, oh, in September, that it was the greatest offensive tackle draft ever. That's what you were hearing. Well, when you go through and look at it, uh, it's a very good offensive line draft. But probably half the guys that people that are thinking are tackles are going to end up being guards. Mm. Um, You know, I think it's a great guard draft. Now, you say that and everybody gets nervous. You know, they're like, what do you mean I can't play tackle? I was I was doing well, shoot, I was doing a podcast with a guy not long ago. And he said he said, well, how do you know that? How do you know that they're not tackles and that they're guards? I said, well, I look at him. He says, well, what do you see? I say, well. If a duck was in front of you, would you say it's a goose? No. I said, I've been looking at tackles for 50 years. I know what a tackle looks like. And if you've got short arms, it's hard to play NFL tackle. Um, So there are certain people for whom um, people are going to freak out listening to you say that because of the discussion about the arm size length this year. That is valid in your mind? That is a concern? I know this. Uh, I did extensive 
research on that every year. I kept track. I kept notes. And and there was one player. First of all, they measure the arm length from the tip of the shoulder all the way out to the end of the fingers, right? And that measurement, if it's 33 inches, that is the question mark. If it's below 33 inches, 32, okay? I only knew one player in my 30 years in the NFL, Jeff Backus, who had 32 and a half and played tackle with the Detroit Lions. And he was a solid player. He's the only one, right? Now, there may have been another. I might have missed him, but I don't think so, all right? Uh, Andrew Thomas last year, when I measured his arms, Andrew's arms were 36 and an eighth inches, which is incredibly long, right? You want your tackles to have 35 inch arms. Very few of them have that. Most of them are 33s and 33 inches is really the decision point. When a guy's arms are 33 inches, you got to say, well, this guy needs to have rare athleticism and rare recovery. Um, if he has slow feet in any way, well, not only can he keep the guy away from him, he can't recover in time. All right. So uh, that's what's interesting. When you go through and you look at the arm length of all these guys, there's a whole bunch of guys 33. There's one guy who's projected to be an offensive tackle by some who has 31 and a half inch arms. I've never heard of a tackle with 31 and a half inch arms. You know, when you go through, I'm not going to say who, people can figure it out but he's supposed to be a highly talented offensive tackle. And uh, so I don't know about that. I'm I don't know. frantically scanning my arm chart for offensive tackles <laughs> here. I'll find that and uh, get back to everybody at the end of the episode. So uh, 30, we've kind of heard a lot of the number 34 this off season, right? Because yeah. Sewell's are, came in at under 34, he's 33 and a quarter, but you're saying it's really 33 is the... 33 is a decision point, okay. right? In Sewell's case, he's 33 and a quarter, mm-hmm. but he has rare athleticism to recover, Okay. Right? So I give him a pass, you know, I say he's okay, All right? You take another guy who's not that way, and I'm not naming any names because these guys paid me to work with them. But uh, I would say, no, he's probably a guard, you know, and a good guard. Hey, Bill Fralick was one of the best linemen to ever play the game. He, you know, was the Outland Trophy winner at Pitt. He was the left tackle. He was uh, the player of the generational player. He had short arms and he couldn't play NFL tackle. He played NFL guard and he was good. The same was with Robert Gallery, right, from Iowa. He was a generational tackle. He ended up playing NFL guard. Both those guys because they had short arms. And um, so is it a huge factor? Is it a factor that, oh, geez, it's kind of overrated? No, it's not overrated. It's It's a very real factor. And then, so is that kind of like the speed thing with the 40? Like Mayak always used to say, you know, fast guys run fast, slow guys run slow. Like you just want to make sure that it isn't what you haven't seen on tape, that it's not the opposite and that forces you to go back and look at something. So when you see that arm length, is it just, but that hasn't shown up on tape, so I'm less concerned about that? Or is that, that hasn't shown up on tape, but I have to go back and look at why that hasn't shown up on tape to make sure that that's not going to be a problem in the NFL? Well, there's a couple things. Sometimes, yes, some guys play with better natural separation than others, which means you could be a 33-incher you know, and still be okay, you know, but if you're, if your helmet's into the guy all the time, 
you know, eh, it's not going to work, you know, and especially what's hard projecting in the NFL is you'll watch a guy and he might only play against an NFL player once a year. You know, it's not like you're putting the film on and he's going against the type of players he's going to play against. So that projection's a little tough because you can't, uh, they don't get enough reps of guys with rare talent like NFL players where they get exposed. How many guys, without naming any names, would you say there are in this class that you would feel comfortable first round grade if you were in a front office? This is going to be a tackle. It's going to be a tackle. They're not moving inside. That's what this guy is, and we feel comfortable making that pick at that position. If that's something that you need, yeah, I think there's, a, I think there's a half a dozen tackles uh, that people are projecting will go in the first round. I think that's if you look at most of mock drafts, you're saying a half a dozen. Now everybody's half a dozen is a little bit different, you know, but. Uh, and I think there's probably four of those guys that will play tackle. You think the other two in this scenario will probably kick inside? Probably, yeah. So if you are a – because as, as we're trying to mock draft and figure out who's going to go where, um, if you are a team who specifically needs a tackle, let's say like the, you know, the Chargers come to mind as a team that's drafting. Yeah, they better uh, get a tackle. So, they better keep that quarterback alive. But right. so they would specifically be looking for somebody that they would like, this is a guy that we know we're not going to kick inside. Right. So that might rule out some of the names that we're seeing on that list potentially. Uh, I, I would say that, yes, that's the case that okay. they would want a guy that they're sure is going to be tackled. All right. Now you see it all the time. I mean, gallery was drafted as a tackle. Freilich was drafted as a tackle but they end up playing guard. So I see it every year, you know, that the, and, uh, but it just happens. I've got about 30 years worth of experience, you know, that, that has taught me that it uh, doesn't work. Would you rather, if you are looking for a guard, because I would imagine there are different skill sets and it's not just tied to, I think a lot of us have this idea of like the most athletic guys are on the outside, right? Um, if you are, looking for a guard, would you rather take a tackle that you're going to move inside to guard? Or would you rather take somebody who has played guard as a very good guard and they have sort of mastered that specific skill set at that point if you're drafting? Yeah. Well, if you, if the, if the skills were equal, if the talent was equal, you'd take the guy who played guard, of course. Um, you know, uh, if the other guy was more talented, uh, you might take him. Uh, I, I see it. If you're going to have a great offensive line in the years that when I did have a great offensive line, I always said, we're looking for three. All right. The years we didn't have three, we didn't have a great offensive line. What is three? Three means I need three of my five starters to be above the first line. Above the first line means uh, if, well, if there's 32 teams, you know, divided by two is uh well, the last I checked is 16, all right? Uh, you know, someone who would rank between 1 and 16 in the league, starting at his position, Okay. Right? You need three of those, all right? If you have three, you got a good offensive line, and that's held up pretty much over the years. Um, some people will draft a tackle that they know is going to be in the bottom third, all right, as a starter. You know, that's about as good as he's going to get, but, hey, that's better than what we got, so we'll take him. 
All right. Uh, so they take a tackle there and bypass on a guard who's going to be above the line player. That I think is a mistake. I think you got to get to three. And if the timing isn't right to get a tackle this year, you know, based on the way the draft falls, mm. you can't do it. Just don't. But there's it. a lot of teams that pigeonhole. Okay, tackle. We've got to budget this amount of money for that position. You can pay tackles. You know, there's a salary cap. You know, it's a, it's the the importance of the position is so important, and I think that's a mistake. You know, how hard is it to if you have played tackle for a while? start playing guard. Some guys can do it. Some guys can't. Some guys can't do it. Okay. What, what is, what is complicated for the person who has played tackle about moving inside to play guard? What's different? What's the, a lot of tackles, their physical stature is that they're high cut. They're taller. They're longer than guards. Guards are usually shorter and wider. Right. And uh, sometimes you get a tackle and move them to guard, but if he's high cut, he can't play with the inside tough leverage that a guard plays with. Mm. So it's usually more of a, a, a mechanical problem of the length of the player. What yeah. about same question sort of, but at tackle, like switching from left to right, or you don't typically see somebody go from right to left, but same thing. Is is that an easy swap? If you say we're drafting somebody who's played left tackle, he's been the best guy on his team for so long, but we're going to put him at right. Is is that a sure thing or is that also hard? Well, Cleveland did it last year with Wills, right? He was the right tackle at Alabama and they moved him to left tackle. Mm. And uh, uh, he did a great job. Now, I know Bill Callahan, the line coach at Cleveland, spent a lot of time with that kid to find out if he was a natural guy to move, right? How do you, how do you know that um, you put him over there and you make him do drills and you see, you see how quickly he can do it. Uh, I worked with Sam Cosme, all right. The kid from Texas, you know, uh, and he played left tackle at Texas. And I do this with all the guys, you know, and I said, okay, today, Sam, we're going to work at right tackle. All right. You don't know. And he went over there and in the drill, he, he looked like he always played right tackle, you know, other guys, I won't say who, right? Mm-hmm. I did the same thing too, and they did not look that way at all. They looked like, oh boy, this guy's gonna take some work. Yeah. So that's the easiest way to find out. You just put him in there and watch him and see if he can do it naturally. I've heard you know? some people say, and not just with you know offensive line play, but it's like if you just try doing something that you always do with your right hand with your left hand, you know, how easily can you make that transition? It's not as easy as just go and do everything in reverse, sort of. Yeah. So some guys can do it, some guys can't. It's just the way it is, you know. I coached Andrew Whitworth, right? Andrew Whitworth was interesting because he was left-handed and he throws left-handed, but he golfs right-handed hmm. because when he was growing up, the only golf clubs around were right-handed. Now, he's a scratch golfer at six foot seven, all right? Hitting a lefty, hitting with right-handed golf clubs, right? And he's kind of even that way. So if he goes either side, it's easy for him. Um but other guys, no, they're, they're like, that's what they do. And especially guys, when you ask guys, I would get nervous when uh, I'd be at the combine and say, okay, yeah, you played left tackle. Yeah. Did you ever play right tackle? No. Not even in high school? No. Did you ever play guard? No. So you've only played left tackle. Yep. Only played left tackle. Well, I would go work that guy out. I would find, is he natural or not? Yeah. I want to ask you about your former team that you coached with for a very long time that uh, drops very high. 
this year and I think has a very interesting choice to make. Um, for me, I think that the choice is clear, but not everybody seems to agree with me. Um, the Bengals, who pick number five, feel like they have a choice to make between offensive line and uh, specifically tackle and then uh, wide receiver. And so it feels like a lot of people are making this a Penny Chase, uh, Penny Sewell or a Jamar Chase conversation. Now, I have argued that the best way to protect Joe Burrow um, and this investment that you've made in him is to literally protect Joe Burrow. And then uh, that makes the weapons that you already have better. Like he just needs time. Um, I would imagine that you would agree with me on that assessment in terms of, but some people have argued that if you give him a, a weapon, that that also, you know, protects him too, because he has places to go. If you were in that building, would you be banging the table for an offensive lineman at five? I had, uh, oh, for a long time, my right tack was Willie Anderson. My left tack was Levi Jones, right? Willie was a Pro Bowl player. Uh, Levi was an alternate to the Pro Bowl. And we had Carson Palmer. And Carson was pretty good, right? And then we had Whitworth with Willie again at the end of his career. And we had Andy Dalton when we were going to the playoffs, right? Well, if you don't protect your quarterback, it doesn't matter. In fact, when you said, okay, take the Chargers, for example, they might take a tackle, right? I go, they better take a tackle. Right. And the reason why I say that is I, I'm, I'm kind of tired of really, and it doesn't matter to me. I guess I got no stake in the game, but but uh, can you learn from history? Like Carr, when he was at Houston, right? He was a terrific talent, but he got annihilated, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, the kid uh, helped me with his name, the Colts, a great quarterback at the Colts, right? Who, you know, they were drafting weapons and all that kind of stuff. Are you talking about Andrew Luck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrew yeah. Luck, right? You know, drafting weapons, you know, yeah, he had great receivers, but he got annihilated, mm -hmm. right? He's not playing. And then when that was with Joe Burrow last year, I was like, the Jets, really? Sam Darnold, like the oh. list goes on, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That I've I've found I think if you got a quarterback and if you asked him honestly and he wasn't being uh uh on the record, mm -hmm. he would rather have protection. Do you think that based on just what you know from having been in buildings for a long time, that that is actually a direction that they might go is wide receiver at five in Cincinnati? It seems so obvious to me that they need to protect him and build that offensive line. And if Penny Sewell is there at five, which is going to be there at five, that it just feels so obvious to me. But clearly this is something that not everybody agrees with. Do you think that there is actually a question in that building about which direction they should go, or do you think it's obvious? Well, I'm close with a number of people still there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and when we've talked, I've said to them, okay, let's make the agreement. We're not talking about your first pick, okay. right? Because I've got an investment, obviously, an interest in Penny Sewell, right? And uh, uh but I know they would look at it this way. They'd look at the draft. They'd say, okay, when it goes back to the second round, can we still get a good offensive tackle? Can we still get a good wide receiver? And they're picking so high in the second round that uh, I'm sure that's what they're balancing right now. I'm sure that's, I'm sure it has more to do with what they think they can get in the second round because it's such a high pick yeah. than that decision in the first round. The drop off at either of the two positions and the yeah. way that the board shakes out. That makes sense. 
Do um do you think that there are other teams in the first round that you have isolated that you think like you mentioned the Chargers, they better take a tackle. Are there other teams that you have also pointed at, you know, in your mind and said like this team absolutely needs to go guard or tackle or center? Um, I think there's a number. I, I really haven't done that part of it because mm-hmm. I'm not really in the agent or the mock draft business, you know. Um, but I know this based on looking at the class that if you're below pick 15, if you're between 15 and 32 and you want an offensive tackle, you better take them in the first round, right? Because once you get to the middle of the second round, in this particular group of guys with historic numbers. And like I say, I don't know the comparisons of the defensive line and the cornerbacks, all that other stuff, but uh, from historic value, um, they're going to be picked over by then. So if you're picking number 25 and you think you'll get a tackle in the second round, uh, you're not going to start for you next year unless something shocking happens, you know, so you got to take them in the first round. Historically, it feels like it's much harder to find a tackle outside the first round. Like if you look around the league, the starting left tackles, the ones who have, you know, been in that job for a while and are uh, established at their position, there are a lot of first rounders that play that position. Whereas to me, if you look at other positions like wide receiver, it's a little bit more hit and miss and the talent kind of comes from various rounds so have you found that to be the case in, in uh, your history? Yeah. And I think the answer is, uh, oh, many of the listeners will have heard this analogy before. Maybe some haven't. The best was description was by John Madden. Mm-hmm. You know, he said that uh, it's the men in the bar principle. You know, you go in and there's a whole bunch of guys who look like they used to play wide receiver in high school but there's only a few guys in the bar that looked like they probably were offensive linemen. It's because there are, our population is not such where there's that many big people that are great athletes, you know, and so they're harder to find their commodity. And uh, so that's why most of them end up being first round picks, you know, and, and that's been true for a long time. You talked about how, when you go in and you work with them, that, that a number of them, have not been exposed to some of the physics and, and that like next level of coaching. Why do you think that that is? Because I feel like we're looking at some other positions where like quarterbacks are coming out and they're more pro ready than they've ever been. And they're super trained up at this high level. And, um, and we're seeing that at some other positions too. Why do you think it is that you're seeing offensive linemen who, who aren't as in the weeds with regard to the coaching yeah, I, I don't know about the other positions, but I do think there's a couple factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I think there's two factors. One uh, is that the 20-hour rule in college, all right, where they don't spend as much time on football as they used to. I coached in college for 10 years, and we spent a lot more than 20 hours a week on football with the players. And uh, so there's that part of it. There's the other part that I call, well, and I see it in pro football. I have, I've got a dozen NFL clients that I work with all year long, right? And there's a, it's a culture issue. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the meetings now, uh, and let me talk about the pro players because there's this uh, 
a similar things going on in the colleges that I've visited, and I've visited a number of the top 10 programs in the country, all right? Um, okay, this is what happens. They come into the meeting, the head coach talks, blah, 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 you know, then, then oh, geez, uh, the strength coach has to talk, and then the uh, the guy who's in charge of being a good man has to talk, you know, and then there's all these different people. They got to talk to the team. They got to this, they got to that, you know, then the offensive coordinators got to talk to the team and then they break up and they go, okay, you got 30 minutes to watch the game. film, mm-hmm. And that's really the way. It, and that's different. When I first came in the league, it wasn't that way. You know, the, you didn't have all the other, Oh, you didn't have the guy who talks to you about being a good man. No, you didn't have the guy who talked about being. <laughs> you know, don't don't. Uh, you know, it's all important. You know, don't 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 beat up your partner. You know, uh, whatever all that yeah. stuff is. You know, don't drink and drive. Don't da 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 da. You know, we lined. We showed up and we coached football, and uh, that's how it was. You know, the staffs were smaller. You didn't have all these other people in roles that. Uh, needed to be justified in a way, if you will. All right. And uh, so that's changed and it's changed in the NFL. Um, and then there's so much now, and I call it because of the Patriot way, the Patriot way, and it's obviously worked very well for them. All right. But the Patriot way is that they do almost all of their instruction together as a group, you know, coach Belichick's in the room uh, or the offensive coordinator, they're all getting on the same page. And that's good for the quarterback. Yeah. It's not good for the offensive line. The offensive line need to be off on their own, working on all the little tiny details uh, that are so involved in the position. You know, that when you're watching, okay, if I'm coaching the offensive line and we're watching a play from yesterday's practice, you know, I'm going to be able to shout out one coaching point for the left guard. Then they're going to go to the next play. You know, where if you're in your room and you're waiting there, is there, telling the quarterback 16,000 things, you know, as they're running the clicker, you know, that, and then you're waiting. So, um, and I, I know that's true. It's different. It's different now. So um, I think that's slowed down the development of the line. People wonder why isn't the line play as good in the NFL right now? I think it's directly related to the installation, the way that people have their meetings and so forth. And I think it's related to off season programs. Do you, oh, so what, what are, what are your thoughts league? now that you see you see the players wanting to do all of the voluntary stuff virtually? Well, when I first came in the league, we would have uh, voluntary stuff, but it wasn't that. I would shoot. I would bring the linemen in for a week, and we'd have a passing camp. You remember when we called them passing camps, right? And yeah, we get together. We'd go over all these things that I go over with players now, you know, and we didn't have to do anything now. Okay. We've got 12 OTAs, right? Oh, eight o'clock team meeting, eight 15, da, 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 eight 30 out on the field, get out there, get stretched, run plays, da, da, da. And by the time you get done, you've done a lot, but you haven't done much in my opinion. Um, So I think it's, it's a little bit of, uh, oh, become a little bit too, bureaucratic in a way, call it whatever you want, um, where these linemen, uh, it, it takes a while to, for these guys to develop and to really become good. And uh, that's my thoughts now. My, my thoughts are, 
I know this. I was talking to one of my guys, right, that uh, uh, he said that he's there at his team. There's only five guys right now on this particular team, and he's there because of injury, right? He, he's in there to get rehab. And he says, well, we go in and we get uh, – they have to get the COVID test, right? And the way the rule is now is they got to sit in their car and wait for the positive or negative test to come back before they're allowed in the building. Right. And he told me he sat in his car for two hours the other day waiting to get the test result so he could walk in the building and get his little hour rehab workout so that he could turn around and walk out. Yeah, just lost time. Well, if I'm a player, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going back. But you have to do that, don't you? I mean, if you have to go in and get the treatment. Well, yeah, if you're required to get your treatment, if you're on that standpoint. But but if I'm a player who's not mm. hurt, let me let me phrase it that way. Right. If I'm a player who's not hurt, am I going to go to Minnesota, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. team it is? Am I going to go to Minnesota so that I can sit in my car for two hours and then I can walk in and I can get my hour weightlifting treatment, right? training so that I can then go back to my apartment and get on a virtual zoom. Yeah. Am I going to do that? No, I'm not going to do that. Right. Just figure out a different way around it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whether that's as helpful or not. Yeah. If they're actually going to practice and do some things. Okay. Yeah. That's a different deal, but not the way it is right now. How important is intelligence on the offensive line? Uh, Other than quarterback, historically the Wonderlick scores uh, the highest position per average, other than kickers, I don't know if they're included or not, other than quarterbacks, is offensive line. And uh, you have to be smart. Um, you have to, oh, we used to look at 21 on the Wonderlick score as uh, being the cutoff of what you felt was satisfactory for offensive line. And what does 21 relate to? Because nobody knows what 21 means. 21 on the Wonderlick score relates to like 100 on the IQ test. All right. So you need a person who has above average, you know, population intelligence. And um, things happen fast. Um, There's lots of plays. There's lots of assignments. There's lots of ifs, ands, or buts. And you need to process that. And then, so you need that type of intelligence, but then from there, uh, you need the intelligence of being, I called it gym rat intelligence, you know, that shoot, if we're playing, you know, he'd know how to pass off a man-to-man defense in basketball, you know, or whatever. And uh, they just know it, they get it, they're athletes. And uh, sometimes, you know, well, not to say anything about Harvard, but there aren't, you know, a hundred players from Harvard playing in the NFL, you know, so uh, you don't have to be a genius, you know, but uh, you need to be, you, you need to have above average population intelligence with the ability to make adjustments quickly. Let me ask you about a couple of the guys that I know that you have worked with. Um, yep. We've mentioned Sewell, who I know you're not ranking but is the consensus number one tackle coming out this year, according to other people, what impresses you the most about his play? Well, I worked six days with Penny, so I know him pretty good. The first day I worked with him, uh, I'm rushing against him. You know, I got the bag. I'm 61 years old, but I still do it. I don't care. I know how to hold a bag and I know how not to get hurt. And, And so he goes and he punches me right in the shoulder right here. Well, I had a bruiser for a month from him. All right. And, uh, 
he hit me and then he hit me again. And I was like, I was like, damn it, Penny, would you hit the bag? You know? <laughs> and so anyways, he has an unbelievably powerful punch and he's got quickness. He's got athleticism. He's got change of direction. Um, you put all that together with another factor because when you, when you're evaluating players, um, these are from the old days, you look at, it's two sides of the column, right? There's two columns. One of the columns is the guy's physical abilities, right? And that can be anything from size, intelligence, balance, flexibility, strength, you know, speed, whatever all those things are, right? And then on the other column, you put productivity. You know, how productive was the guy? Well, what happens, there's conflicts between teams, you know, they'll say, Oh, he's a scout guy. Well, the scouts like him because he's strong on this column, you know, or, oh, no, the coach likes him because he blocks his guy every play, right? So that's where the conflict comes in. And really the synthesis in it is when the two columns merge Mm -hmm. and you come up with a person who is talented and productive, right? Now, what does that mean in Penny's case? Well, he has the highest pro football focus grade they've ever given a college offensive lineman, right? Meaning his guy has pressured the quarterback fewer times than anybody else, you know, percentage coach guy. Yeah. So he's got the talent mm-hmm. scouts love him, right? Mm-hmm. He's got the production coach guy. There he is, right? Kind of, kind of simple. And when you put it that way, and when you start hanging too long, one way or the other, right? Um, you're taking risk. How much, so to go back to the, the scout guy point, cause I would imagine this is like more the projection. This is the upside, right. like the yeah, yeah, physicality. Yeah. It's all there. We haven't seen it necessarily play out in a game in the way that you would want it to, but it could. How, how much do you weight that in, in the evaluation process when you're looking to project somebody to play in the NFL? Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking there's a general rule, uh, the national football uh, scouting has put together over the years what the definition of a round value is, right? Meaning what is a first round pick? What is a second round pick? What is a third round pick? And they would say that in the first three rounds, the guy has to be at least satisfactory in both. Now, when you get to the fourth round, the fourth round grade you would put on a guy is a developmental player, okay? right? And you can look at, okay, and a developmental player can be a guy who's got the talent who needs to develop it, or it could be a guy who's really productive, but he's a limited athlete. So he's kind of a short-term fix to plug in the hole, you know? So I think there comes a point in time when you measure that, you know, and the more it is high, then the higher the pick he is. If you kind of rank him from the beginning of the first round to the end of the third round, you know? the end of the third round, the guy's starting to be weak on one side of the column or the other. And uh, so that's kind of how it does it. But I see, I see every year they pick guys, guys will get picked in the first round that uh, are either all one side or the other. How do you think that happens? They do a bad job. The the team does a bad job, you know, kind of waiting and, and evaluating it uh, it's unfortunate, but because the the people in the buildings where that happens, 
they must have offensive line coaches and people who know better than that, right? You think it's probably just somebody who's higher than them that doesn't listen to that, that sees something that they like and their opinion overrides that? Or do you think that there are offensive line coaches in the league that also get enamored with a guy who fits one column and not the other and you just disagree? Um, every team is different. Yeah. Uh, the team that I was with always believed in consensus, mm-hmm. right? Um, that they had to, the scout had to feel good about the player and the coach had to feel good about the player. Uh, a coach, uh, a team, when I started with the New York jets, uh, Dick Steinberg ran it. And, uh, my first year coaching, uh, uh, we drafted Johnny Mitchell, a tight end in the first round. And I was a, from Nebraska and I was a tight end coach. I walked in on draft day and Dick Steinberg said, Hey, you may want to watch Johnny Mitchell on film, you know, cause the reporters might ask you a question about him. That's how much he cared about what I thought about him. Right? <laughs> Zero. All right. No questions. Just no. have some answers Zero. ready. Yeah. And a lot of the teams that they'll be sitting in their offices when the players are picked, you know, and yeah. they have no idea. They don't know what the grade is. So, is a team, teams can be coach driven, mm-hmm. all right? Some teams that are coach driven, you know, uh, you know, where they'll kind of just let the scouts gather information and then the scout, then the coaches will put a grade on them. You know, other teams are scout driven where they don't really care what the coaches say. And then other teams are more collaborative and it just depends on the team. And I do believe this. I think that fewer mistakes are made through collaboration. More voice is never a bad thing, unless I guess it all gets muddied, right? right. right. Got to go somewhere with it. Voices, it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. So, tell me about Christian Darisaw. Okay, Uh, Christian Darisaw. I go down to Virginia Tech. Uh, I'm sorry, I go down to Pensacola at Exos. He's from Virginia Tech, played at Virginia Tech, and he walks in the room, and I said, "My God, that's what a left tackle looks like." You know, he's tall, he's lean, he's muscular, he's heavy for. If you look at him, you would guess he's 20 pounds lighter than he is, which is always a good sign. I always do that. I always guess. I say, how much you weigh, blah, blah, blah. And then if they're heavier than I thought, it's always good, right? Because muscle's heavier than fat, you know? And uh, so anyways, uh, so he, when I worked with him, he was just, he had a little off-season cleanup. And so he wasn't able to work on the field, but I worked with him in all the film rooms and he's smart and he's another guy because he killed it in his pro day, you know, the 40, the agilities, the jumps, the bench, all those kind of things. He killed it. And uh, when you look at his PFF grade, I look at the PFF grades, right? He also is highly graded. So he's a guy who does well on both sides. You know, I think he's a good safe pick. He'll be a good player. You uh, said when you first walked in that you looked at him and said, there is a left tackle. Yeah, he's not a goose. He's a duck. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What about Sam Cosme from Texas? Sam Cosme, I worked with him uh, oh, for six or seven days, probably. He's a great guy. Uh, I kind of mentioned that left tackle, okay, now go to right tackle. He did that easy. Okay, let's try guard. Did that easy. Um, he is the guy. There's always a guy like this. There's a guy in the group that's always hitting someone really hard. And then saying, oh, sorry. You know what I mean? There's always one guy in the group that's working harder than everybody else, right? 
that's Sam Cosby, right? Which I like, which is good, right? You know, he's intense, he's tough, he's physical, he's dedicated. He he wants to be a pro football player, let me put it that way. And he has that whole, I don't know, some guys just have, they're built where they can withstand the punishment of blocking, you know, where other guys, you know, might, you know, get injured or not be as stout and as strong. You know, he's got big, thick bones in his arms and his hands. And, um, and of course, at this pro day, he killed it, you know, just like Christian, you know, his 40, his agilities, his bench, all that kind of stuff. So, so here's a guy with rare toughness, competitiveness, work ethic with a lot of physical traits. So I like Sam. Who's a guy that you've worked with that you think we all collectively should be talking about more that for some reason, the name just isn't. That's easy. Getting out there. That one's real easy. Walker Little, Stanford. All right. Um, I say that on Walker Little for, for this reason. I've known Walker for a couple of years. Um, and each and asked me to evaluate. This is for the draft class of last year. Okay. Right. To evaluate a whole list of these guys. Right. And this was really in the off season before their senior years, um, really before we knew who Becton was and, you know, who Worfs was and who Wills was and all that. But, but anyways, at that time, when I watched all those guys, I said, I said, okay, it's going to be a debate. Who's the first lineman drafted Andrew Thomas or Walker Little. That's what I saw. All right. I saw, a big guy who's a tremendous athlete. He's six foot eight. He now weighs 315 pounds, right? And uh, so that's what I saw in my first thing. Well, yeah, so I, I wrote a report. I got to know him. I worked with him in the offseason. This is when he was still at Stanford, right? And uh, uh, I've worked with him now. He sat out this year. And uh, for some reason, that kind of is being held against him a little bit, you know? That that's interesting because that's not the case across the board with everybody. Yeah, it's but he his case was he was injured uh, and then like missed a whole season, right? And then he missed this season, so he's really missed like two years. Mm-hmm. You know, where Slater's only missed one, right? Northwestern, right? So, so that's kind of an interesting thing. But, but I think there's people who really like him because I call around. I've talked to a dozen of the line coaches about the different guys I've worked with. They wonder my opinion and. People like this guy. Um, the mock drafts don't like him as well, right? I think he's probably going to go sooner than people think, right? And based on what people say, I hear the same on Jackson Carmen. Those are two guys the coaches like better than the mock draft people like. So, interesting. Paul, I really appreciate your time. This has been an interesting perspective for me. Thank you so much. Okay, great. And you can hear more from Paul on Twitter at Coach Paul Alex. And I'm still working on that mock draft. Thing is, it's so hard to do with trades factored in. But if I don't factor in trades, it's like guaranteed to be way off, right? So I'm stuck. This is one of the many reasons I do my job and the people who do mock drafts do mock drafts, but I refuse to let my scouting inadequacies dissuade me from partaking in this somewhat narcissistic endeavor. I will have my voice be heard. I'll just post it on Twitter or something between now and Thursday night. And then I guess we'll meet back here on Friday to talk about how it all went down. Finally, no more projecting. We'll have moves to discuss. I can't wait. 
We'll see you then.